I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. Back in 2017, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine reported that non-medicinal interventions like cognitive training, blood pressure management, and increased physical activity all showed modest but inconclusive evidence for reducing a person's risk of dementia. In October 2023, six years later, the National Academy's Committee on Research Priorities for Preventing and Treating Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias will meet for a new public session to discuss updates on the research and science of these interventions. Joining us to talk about non-medication-based strategies for reducing dementia risk is Dr. Luke Stokel. Dr. Stokel works as a part of the National Institute on Aging, serving as the Director of the Mechanistic and Translational Decision Science Program and the Neuropsychology of Aging and Early Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias Program. He is also a licensed clinical neuropsychologist and a cognitive neuroscientist. And full disclosure for those listening, I do know Dr. Stokel, or Luke as I will call him, pretty well because we worked together on a National Academies meeting or, or workshop back in August of 2021, and we will have a reference to that final document in our show notes. But it's wonderful to have you back, Luke, and welcome to Dementia Matters. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, long time coming. <laughs> well, we're going to jump right in, but I want to be a little bit personal in the beginning. So if you don't mind sharing with us, how did you get interested in clinical neuropsychology, cognitive neuroscience, but then ultimately why you're working for the National Institute on Aging? Yeah, I'll keep it brief. Uh, my entree into the world of dementia and Alzheimer's kind of did not follow a linear path. Uh so I initially got excited about this area through an interest in mental health, actually. And so a lot of my early graduate work focused on work with individuals with severe chronic mental illness, including schizophrenia. What I had noticed as a clinician at the time in training was a lot of the patients that I saw, the thing that was disrupting their function wasn't their uh, psychosis or, you know, these so-called positive symptoms, but uh, cognitive dysfunction and didn't understand a lot about cognitive dysfunction at the time in the late 90s, early 2000s. But uh, the National Institute of Mental Health actually was investing a lot in cognitive enhancing therapies. And at the time, I was interested in some related issues like um, cigarette smoking, which you see at very high rates in individuals with schizophrenia, disruption in metabolic function. I was in Alabama at the time where we have a lot of good barbecue. And so we saw a lot of diabetes. I don't know. As an early student, I was like, I think I can have a better shot of making a name for myself in the world of you know, obesity or, or addiction. And these seem to be important issues for, for individuals. And as I move forward, you know, I finished my training in clinical neuropsychology at Mass General Hospital in Boston to complete my degree where I did a lot of dementia evaluations, but I saw more and more of that population and learned more and more about risk factors for development of dementia. And, you know, at the time we were introduced to the concept of mild cognitive impairment for the first time. 
And it seemed like the field was going earlier and earlier. And as we moved earlier and earlier, those risk factors seemed to be more important. And that was an area of science I actually knew quite a bit about. So, you know, kind of fortuitously, uh, I first actually started off at the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive and Kidney Diseases when I came to NIH, because I was really interested in the role of diabetes in, you know, as a risk factor for later life, cognitive decline and dementia risk, but also to help us understand if there are mechanisms that might be different from the traditional kind of amyloid tau neurodegeneration biomarkers that we all are familiar with now. And uh, so a lot of my work was focused there. I was also introduced to colleagues at the National Institute on Aging that were working through this NIH Common Fund program called the Science of Behavior Change. And so another hat I wear is as a clinical psychologist. A lot of my therapy is based on the science of behavior change. So, you know, I met a lot of good people there. I love the people from the NIA. And um, once the Alzheimer's effort got ramped up and NIA was the lead federal uh, agency for driving the research agenda, uh, I kind of got drawn over to NIA. And now I work a lot on prevention, uh, measurement. I'm a neuropsychologist and a lot of other things early in the disease course. You're not the only one to talk about a non-linear way to get where you are today. Your clinical experience, though, certainly influenced you know where you are today. That's right. What, what's interesting to me too, and I'll just say personally, you know, as a geriatrician who who focuses on cognition, in the beginning, I didn't recognize the that when we think of brain, like the brain function and brain health, mood and mental health is such a key component of that. Yes, so is thinking and attention and memory. It all happens up in the brain. It, it makes sense. And you're in this very interesting space because you're right. The whole field has gone earlier and earlier. And when we think of that, all of a sudden now risk instead of disease and then prevention or risk reducing behaviors instead of treatments of disease. And so we're going to get into that in this podcast. And so I want to go back then to 2017 and have you kind of go over for our listeners, you know, what were the key findings what did the science at that time show about these non-medication-based interventions for the prevention of dementia? Yeah, yeah. So this was actually before I came to NIA. So I came to NIA in 2019, but this was a very influential report from the National Academies in 2017 on preventing cognitive decline. And essentially that consensus study found encouraging but inconclusive evidence suggesting that further research should be focused on three specific areas, cognitive training, blood pressure management, and increased physical activity. And there were some other recommendations, which I think are actually even more important <laughs> uh, for driving a research agenda, which are things like tailoring individual or interventions to individuals at high risk, beginning interventions earlier, as we said, using consistent cognitive outcome measures, which I'd like to talk about. Uh, it's a little tricky to do that earlier for reasons we can, we can get into, uh, including biomarkers as intermediate outcomes, getting more participation from underrepresented groups, and then conducting larger trials to look outside of the clinic in, in more community settings. And I'm going to want to get into those other recommendations because I think that is such an important part when we think about the science of non-medication-based interventions. But when you think about the the three that they talked about in 2017, cognitive training, blood pressure control, increased physical activity, which actually would help with blood pressure control. Did any of these surprise you? Were you a skeptic at all with any of these since you were not a part of that meeting in 2017? Yeah, yeah. So you know this because we've talked about it, but the cognitive training actually surprised me quite a bit. It's been one of these stories that continues 
to surprise me. And I worked a lot uh, before coming to NIH on neurotechnology development projects using imaging. Part of my work, I worked right next to a colleague who did a lot of work on cognitive training. And there were a lot of null findings at the time. There's a lot of hype, you know, with companies coming out promoting their products. Uh, But some of the science didn't look like it was terribly promising. You could train things for what they call near transfer. That is, you know, you could train people to do a task and they'll do better at the task you train them on, but you're not really interested in whether somebody can draw lines on a trails task. You want to see how that translates into things that they care about and their function in the real world. We weren't seeing those effects and it wasn't clear why. So when I saw that, I was like, really cognitive training, you know, and since, you know, we've been focusing a lot on that and I is invested because of that report. And I think the investment is paying off. I'm, you know, I won't, consider myself a convert, but I'm much more open to what the research is showing in that area than I was when I read that report. It's funny because in, in the memory clinic that I work in, and I work with a lot of neuropsychologists and I, and I love working with neuropsychologists, but they're always like you, a little bit on the hesitant side, a little bit questioning. Whereas for me, I love it. I love the idea of mental stimulation. I, w- I want all of my patients to do it. But you and the science, the hard science, are able to put a pause and say, well, let's let's think about this. And and you are right. Many of those companies that came out have been sued or have had you know repercussions to overpromising what they can deliver. But it is funny to me that, that is a, that's the one that surprises you. And yet, I'm, I'm glad to hear there's building evidence. And so, I, you know, when talking about those other really important findings from 2017, the tailoring the intervention, using consistent outcomes, that kind of feeds into my question of why is it so hard or what makes these studies, why is it so difficult? Why have we taken so long to get where we are? Well, I think one obvious challenge is that it takes a long time to get to the outcome we care about, which is uh, whether someone has dementia or not. And so if we're talking about, let's say something I am currently, you know, really focused on midlife prevention, you're talking about 20, 30, 40 years before you see the outcome, right? You can't do those studies. They'd be expensive. They'd be difficult to get people to stay um, engaged. So that's one obvious thing. I think there are other, this gets back to the measuring the outcome issue. There are several challenges, but I'll focus on this one because I'm a neuropsychologist. And traditionally, a lot of our outcome measures in dementia and Alzheimer's have focused on later stages of disease and also on differentiating groups. So do you have dementia or not? And we have a lot of great measures for doing that. You know, They were developed a long time ago and they did a great job of doing what they do. What they're not great at doing is measuring cognitive change, especially change within an individual. And especially early in the disease course, when the changes in cognitive function are going to be more subtle. Having said that, we now have new tools and technologies. We have mobile monitoring. We have remote testing we can do. We have the ability to do really dense testing of people in their real world environment. They don't have to come in once a year to a neuropsych clinic where we shut out all the noise in the world and give them, in some cases, eight to 10 hours of uh, these kind of artificial, essentially cognitive games to understand how their brains function, right? So I think that's opened up some opportunities. Having said that, let's use cognitive training as an example or something like mindfulness. Let's use mindfulness because it's an easier one. If you think about a study where you might be interested in whether engaging in mindfulness has a positive effect on 
you know, your dementia outcome of whatever it is. There's not a lot of great ways of studying mindfulness behavior. You can ask people what they're doing in a given moment, experience sampling, and they can tell you, and there are lots of rich information from self-report, a lot of limitations. We often complement self-report data with behavioral data or performance data. It's not clear what that would be in mindfulness. Um, Some people, if you're thinking about cognitive function, will use reaction times, how quickly you're kind of responding to things. And if you're engaged in a deep mindfulness exercise, you know, there are different patterns of slowing in your response times. And it's very indirect. It's not specific to mindfulness. And one of the advantages of tools like neuroimaging, for example, is there do seem to be some characteristic systems in the brain. Uh, so the so-called default mode network, other task negative and task positive. So parts of the or networks of the brain that respond to demands from the external environment and switching back and forth between those two things seems to be a beneficial effect of mindful, or that's what some people think is uh, mindfulness can help toggle between that internal world and that attention to the external world more effectively. And so you can see that in imaging, but again, it's imaging. It's not a behavioral measure. It's depending on who you talk to, difficult to interpret that data at times. So I think it's just challenging to study in the ways we'd like to. Um, We don't know if people are engaging effectively, like what's an optimal dose? How do we know? Like, it's not like exercise where we have a heart rate and we can say, you know, keep your heart rate within this range and we can monitor it. You know, we don't know when people are engaged in mindfulness and that with that level of precision. Well, I think that's such a good point when we think about the actual science, because someone might have a really great idea like, oh, you should practice mindfulness five days a week for 30 minutes. And that that might be helpful, but how do we study it, right? So it takes a long time to have the tools or the measurements. You have to have the right outcomes. And then as you've mentioned previously, perhaps using a biomarker instead of your ultimate outcome, which is the well-being or cognition of a person, having something that sort of, well, I can do this in three years versus 20 years. So there is a lot of limitation. I can appreciate that. I think that was one reason that there was a you know an interest in the intermediate uh, biomarkers as the intermediate measures. I think the hope was... Like with statins, you know, you could look at the mindfulness version of what that would be. I mean, I think the other critical piece that we focus a lot on is historically, we've done a lot of trials where we have this package of this intervention and we test whether it works or not. And either it's like a check, yes or no. If it doesn't work, we don't really know why it works. In in some cases, if it does work, we don't know why it works, right? And so I think that we're changing that. You know, we're really promoting this uh, mechanisms of focused approach to research now. Uh, we have something called the NIH stage model, which I can share information in the show notes about, but uh, essentially it asks the research community to, at all stages of their research, to embed questions about mechanism. That is, what's accounting for the effects we either do or do not see um, in the interventions that we're testing. So that's another big change. That wasn't, you would think that kind of stuff was happening routinely, but it really wasn't. And that all came because of this 2017 conference. And that seems like an important change. You're making it more scientific, more measurable, more repeatable, since we want to make sure things could actually be repeated. So let's fast forward now to present day. Can you update our listeners? What has the field learned? And through studies, maybe not as much as meetings, but through studies since 2017, what have we learned about non-medication interventions? And what do you anticipate is going to be discussed? What's the new thing that in the research world when it comes to 
lifestyle interventions? Yeah, I mean, we've learned a ton. So I think that if you look at our investments in this area at NIA, we've supported 152 non-pharmacological trials as of September of 2022. And the majority of those are exercise trials. So the one thing that we are learning more is, you know, exercise, for example, is great, whether it has a beneficial effect on risk reduction or, you know, modifying the disease course for Alzheimer's, that's maybe still a little unclear, but whether it's exercise, diet, or a number of these kind of areas that are important for modifying risk related to lifestyle, getting people to stick to those things is incredibly difficult. So the area of adherence is something we've been investing heavily on since that meeting. Um, Using this experimental medicine approach where we ask what are the mechanisms that account for why someone adheres to the intervention or not. I think we are learning more about not just whether these different approaches to treatment work, but why people are adhering or not. And that will help us better understand the mechanisms that account for the beneficial effects, because you can think about it, if people aren't adhering and it's not random, then there might be reasons people are dropping out of trials. Um, We might be not adequately powered to test effects and all these other things. So I think through a series of research studies, we're going to be learning a lot about why and how people adhere, not only to exercise though, the things that I talked about that are a little more tricky, like cognitive training or mindfulness, we're investing in smart people and the research community to help us better understand how do we measure adherence, why and how do people adhere. The idea that someone sitting on a computer able to do an intervention from their home, you know, that wasn't even a thing, you know, when I was going through training. And now that's like, of course they can do that. But how we monitor people when they're not in the clinic, how we kind of develop interventions that use the technologies we have in front of them, what we need to be aware of when we're thinking about whether people are attending, averting their eyes from the camera. What does that mean? You know, we never thought about that. I don't think as much when we're in the clinic. Now we have all this data where we can just like track people's eyes at all times. I think some of that is exciting. I mean, new areas that didn't make it in the report, if you remember, it was only three things. I think, you know, I I don't know that they're new, but they've certainly gotten more attention like sleep, diabetes, social engagement, and loneliness. I mentioned mindfulness and mental health. You've already done a whole podcast on that, which is excellent. I think all those rise to the top, especially because they seem to be critical in our current like modern society. All those things are getting absolutely taxed. I think the other thing that's getting greater focus is on what's meaningful to individuals. We're doing a lot of personalized tailoring trials. So you have like the, the SMART trial or um, the finger or pointer trial people might be familiar with, but you're starting to take all these risk factors, which are many um, that are specific to an individual and tailoring interventions, not only for what the clinician or researcher thinks is important, but what the person sitting across from you, so to speak, finds meaningful to them. And so I think that's a change in how we're thinking in our design and, and what we're evaluating. You know, there was the ACHIEVE trial, which was a hearing aid intervention that recently reported out this summer, for example. And I know there's different takes on that. Um, maybe the top line result was uh, negative on the cognitive outcome, uh, unless, you know, maybe a subgroup analysis if you're at high risk. But I think one thing that was found in that study is improvement in quality of life. So, you know, depending on what measures you're including in your study, the way you think about the outcome of your trial is going to be very different. And what's meaningful to the person enrolled in that trial might not necessarily be the thing that the researcher is only interested in. And 
that's important because, you know, we're doing research that serves a public interest, including the people that are participating in our trials. I mean, I think in general, digital health technologies is something I'm fascinated with right now. From the assessment standpoint, the ability to just monitor signals in our environment from the devices we wear and carry with us, supercomputers in our pocket. But now there are even newer technologies that could measure radio frequencies in our environment when we don't even have to wear stuff, to pick up on patterns of our breathing when we're sleeping, to detect mild changes that may be indicative of changes in disease states, symptoms. Uh, there's a whole bunch of cool stuff. And then using that information also to develop interventions that can be delivered in people's real environment, you know, real world environment in real time, so-called just-in-time interventions. That's incredibly exciting as well. So I don't know. There's a lot of exciting stuff, I think, happening. A lot of this is still early though, right? It's And so we have this new commission study that's going to follow up that 2017 report. We just met for a public session on Monday, actually. And uh, so we'll be learning more about what that committee finds important um, because there's still a lot, right? There's a lot, lot out there. I appreciate and I wasn't prepared for you to talk about the idea of, of person-centered outcomes, what is meaningful to the people who are being studied. And that certainly is something that should be factored into a scientific trial. But you kind of need to know what those things are or how to ask those questions or look at them. I also, I mean, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's exciting, but it's also overwhelming because you're right that research or clinic space has changed. It's no longer this office room in a hospital or some gray older building. I mean, it's everywhere now because of the way we can do things. And so that space is huge, which maybe allows for better adherence. We'll find out as we figure out how to study and measure adherence, but it's just a lot of data for you to collect and analyze. Yeah. And I'm not going to ask you any questions about AI and artificial intelligence, but I would anticipate it's, we're going to be relying on things like that to help us with some of the data. But one other thing that you've mentioned to me prior to this podcast, though, is this Focus too on brain health equity. And so can you speak to, you know, how is that being incorporated into all of this? Yeah. So I think that's become incredibly clear. I know for me, that was kind of central to my training from a very early. So I mentioned to you earlier, you know, I got my start in the field of mental health as a case manager. I was working in North Florida doing outreach through these assertive community treatment groups and on my own as a case manager. And it was clear that the people I was reaching out to were not the same people that I was seeing at Gold's Gym, for example. Uh, at the same time, those people that I was seeing were overburdened by the diseases we were trying to understand and, and treat. And so I think it's a simple idea with brain health equity is just, it's a fair distribution of brain health determinants, outcomes, and resources within and between segments of the population, regardless of social standing. And that's a definition I stole from Monica rivera Ment. Central to all our projects is that emphasis. And that has an importance to measurement as well. So the way that we've tried to understand and measure cognitive function, for example, is a very specific way. We're asking you, for example, to complete English language dependent tasks. If you're not a native English language speaker, what does that mean for your performance? A lot of the tools that were developed have been developed in Europe or in the US. They're developed at different times. Not only do we need to think about culture and societal impacts on brain function and brain health, which will help us create a kind of assessment and intervention plan that 
is more responsive to the needs of the people that we hope to serve, especially those disproportionately impacted by the diseases of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Um, it's one reason I was interested in diabetes, for example, um, another disease, you know, I was, I grew up in the stroke belt. Uh, so we saw a lot of uh, obesity and diabetes. And again, it's not random who is impacted by those diseases more than others. I mean, everybody to some extent in this country is now in develop in the developing world, but still early on, there were specific groups that seemed to be overrepresented by those diseases, certain racial and ethnic groups, uh, individuals at different strata of the socioeconomic uh, spectrum. And so we just want to be mindful of that. And I think that if we're doing all our research in so-called weird populations or people that are highly educated, mostly white, uh, mostly pretty well off in terms of income and uh, things like that, it's not always clear that that's going to generalize to individuals that don't fit that profile. And so it's very basic. I mean, you don't want to test something and approve something that's just not going to work in somebody else, right? I mean, it's not really that complicated. Like, here's a thing, it, we've done all this research, and not only does it not work in this person, but these are the people that are most impacted by these diseases. So like, we want to make sure the work we're doing is going to reach the people that need it most. And so that's kind of the idea behind centering um, the work that we do on brain health equity. And I'm not sure you can answer this question because you are a program officer for the NIA, but are there any current or ongoing studies that you're pretty excited about and look forward to hearing the results when it comes to non-pharmacological, non-medication-based interventions, or even just the, the adherence part of it as people are looking at that? Yeah, I mean, I can. There's a mandate now from the White House, actually, to get our research findings out as quickly as possible. And so when things are public, my view is we need to be there to communicate that information to the public as quickly as possible, get those findings out in a digestible way. So once a, a project is funded, it's available. We have this tool called the NIH Reporter that anybody can go into and check it out and you can search for whatever you're interested in. I'll use cognitive training as an example. Yeah, we have a couple large studies that are looking at computerized cognitive training, but also things like just having people complete crossword puzzles. It's something we've heard about forever to see if something like a low-cost, non-proprietary approach to so-called training our brain, not using fancy computers, is an effective strategy or is that just you know, lore. We're getting to the point where we now have adequately powered larger trials to that are more definitive. One of those trials from Jerry Edwards at the University of South Florida Leeds is called PACT, Preventing Alzheimer's Through Cognitive Training. So uh, that's an, an interesting trial. I mean, I mentioned before, I think some of the results from some of these tailoring type interventions like a SMART trial where you're using individual risk factors and trying to get people to adhere to two or three of them, maybe more, uh, to see if it has a beneficial effect on risk reduction. I think those are exciting. I like basic work. So some of the work that I'm most excited about is basic mechanistic work that is going to identify new targets for development that we haven't thought of. And I think one reason I think digital health technologies are so cool and promising is we're going to be able to assess people in their free living environment when they're engaged in complex behaviors in ways we've never been able to before. And so we'll know, are there these subtle changes? Like I use the example of the changes in your breathing patterns when you're sleeping or things like that, that are going to be markers of change that then we can identify people earlier on to test some of these interventions to see does early really work for modifying disease 
not just with, we now know that that seems to be true in some cases with the pharmacotherapies, you know, with these anti-amyloid therapies, but does that work also with our non-pharmacological therapies? And I don't think we know that yet. So I think when we really do make more progress in this early detection to identify people at earlier risk, um, then we'll start to understand better. How do we modify? Like what are the optimal intervention points? Like ages, we don't even know that yet, really, you know, what, high risk features seem to be most amenable to modification. What are the neural mechanisms um, that are more, uh, you know, modifiable or not? All that stuff is like kind of happening right now. Some of the protocols are published, but some of the reported outcomes being reported, I mentioned the ACHIEVE trial, for example, there's a couple of exercise things that have been published recently. Mindfulness, there was a mindfulness study. Some of those have not been as promising as I think we had hoped. So we're looking for new directions. And we hope in part this academy study that's being commissioned will help us identify some new promising areas. I did point out one specific study. There's a lot though. What did I mention the amount that we're funding? So I don't want to do short shrift to like all the other uh, 152 plus trials that we're doing right now. But those are some examples. When you mentioned, I mean, you've made some comparisons to medications. And so my next question for you is, do you think there's going to be a time when drug interventions and lifestyle interventions are in the same study? I Absolutely. First of all, I mean, it's already pretty common if you think about like blood pressure control and lifestyle intervention. Uh, when I was at NIDDK, we had the diabetes prevention program. And in that program, individuals use lifestyle modification with metformin. And uh, we have a trial now that's being uh, supported to follow up the DPP through their observational phase to see if metformin has a beneficial effect on more ADE biomarkers and other things like that. So that's a legacy study, uh, but we have several of those that are ongoing right now. And I, I, the, the other thing I would mention is combo therapies using devices. So for a long time, we've talked about pharmacotherapies, but you know, one thing that I had focused a lot on in my early career, like I said, was neurotechnology development. And one thing that people have used quite a bit is neuromodulation. Um, so I think combining neuromodulation with lifestyle intervention, not just pharmacotherapy, is uh, exciting. So one thing, you know, if you think about cognitive training, for example, there are some people that think using neuroplasticity and mechanisms like this, if you can tweak the brain to be in a state for optimal learning, for example, through, you know, non-invasive neurostimulation, then that might be a state that would be beneficial for training, not just throwing training at anybody at any time of day. I think th those kind of approaches will become more common for sure. It, I think it has to be combos. I mean, it has to, right? No, I, and, and that makes perfect sense to me. And, and frankly, I think to most of our listeners, we're all wanting to know the lowest hanging fruit. We're all wanting to know the, the greatest risk factor because we're willing, maybe more willing to make those changes. But it is interesting to hear about the different combinations because it makes the most sense. Of course, as a geriatrician, multimodal intervention is ingrained in how we approach things. I'm going to end today with a personal question, because you're exposed to lots of different research, some successful, some showing, you know, not null findings or just not successful findings, although the study could still be successful. What, you know, what are you doing right now to keep your brain healthy? And what is one thing you wish you were doing either more of or to start? Just one thing, Nate, just one thing. <laughs> That's right. Just, I'm going to put you just that one thing. <laughs> oh man. Well, I, you know, I've changed some things that I used to do a lot more. Um, 
when I was younger. My big thing that I've been intensely focused on is sleep. I think it's top of mind because I do have, I'm a father of two young kids. You know, I've been through the gamut of sleep disruption. I will say the one thing that I haven't done an exceptional job of is my diet. (laughs) You know, I love ice cream. You know, I know it's probably not great for me. I studied the effects of sugar on the brain. I believe in that research. Having said that, uh, it's an example of just believing and knowing something does not translate into behavior change because I know that I still love ice cream and I still find myself eating it in more than I probably should. Uh, The other thing I would say though, exercise, you know, I give myself a break, right? You know, it's not like all or none for me. I've learned, you know, I find the combination of things that seems to work for me. I'm not going to do everything perfectly. I've always been engaged in exercise. I was a competitive athlete as a younger kid and I found yoga in later life. So that's kind of something that I routinely stick to that gives me a nice combo of exercise and mindfulness practice, even though the jury's out on whether uh, it will have a beneficial effect on my brain. Um, I enjoy it. I benefit from it almost immediately. And so it's meaningful to me, uh, even if it doesn't have the outcome on cognition that I would hope. Um, no, let's let's not overanalyze the data when it comes to just our well-being, Luke. So um, thank you for, for sharing and being honest about that. None of us are perfect. Uh, so I'd like to thank you again for, for being on Dementia Matters, and I certainly intend to have you back on in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. It was great. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen, or tell your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes on Aging for Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Amy Lambright-Murphy and edited by Kaylin Rauerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.